Hey, good morning, evening, afternoon, whatever it is. Uh, this is J JPB Gerald, your host for Unstandardized English. I managed to say the title correctly this time. That's good. That's a good thing to do. Uh, this is a podcast where we seek justice for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized. What that means is we talk about racism, we talk about ableism, we talk about language-based discrimination, to the point that all of them are are aligned. So every episode touches on all of them. My research is mostly focused on. Now my research is about all three. What I really want to talk about today, and let me let me I'll get to the guest um, at the end of this intro. Is like I finished, you know, and I graduated, and I have a couple of small things to tie off. I sent out my dissertation for format review. I think I did a good job, but I am sure it being a couple hundred page document that there is something I have to change, but you know, whatever, that won't take me very long. Uh, and my book, I just completed the index, which is pretty short. I was making, you want to make a book index and you look at somebody else's book index, it's like nine pages. I'm like, all right, I, I was going to, I went through the book and I said, what's every significant author and significant idea that comes up in here. Except for certain things. So like when I was making an index, the book is about, which you can pre-order, by the way. I will be promoting it a lot more this summer. Um, it's about uh, my things. Whiteness, language, disability, those sort of things. Um, and so originally I wrote down like whiteness and disability and blackness as like, Things that show up. And then I realized when I started going through the pages it appeared on, it's on almost every page. So I was like, well, that's not going to help anybody. Uh, anyone who's reading this book knows that this book is about these things. So I tried to put together an index of things that maybe show up frequently or show up in important ways, but not on every single page because that's silly. So I ended up with about, I don't know, 89, 90 items for it. It's kind of short. Um, it's not every author who appears. It's every author who I think... Uh, is important to what I'm saying um, and yeah uh, the book's done the people who make books are making it they gave me proofs which I had to create the index from it looks like a real book the real people made now and it's weird because I bought a program called Scrivener maybe Scrivener I don't know and it helped me because I knew after my previous job where I was writing a couple of hundred page documents in Microsoft Word that should not have been made in Microsoft Word. We were trying to publish what were essentially amateur books for the work that we were doing. And Microsoft Word is just like, unless you're writing pure text, Microsoft Word is terrible. Unfortunately, it's not like there's another option. I mean, like you could do Google Docs, but then that's just Microsoft Word with fewer features. So, but the point is my last job, we had to do a lot of like visual designing and things like, you know, moving tables here and moving images here and things like that. They just don't work very well in a long document on Microsoft Word. Even if you use, I learned a lot of things about Microsoft Word, like styles and all that. I say all this to say, I bought this program knowing I had that issue with my last job and I made it so I wrote all the sections and placed them into separate sections and then I pressed a button on the system and it compiled it. Once it was compiled, I had to go through and, 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 and orient things like the footnotes didn't always line up, you know, things like that. Um, and then they changed that all in the, uh, in the proofs anyway. So, you know, that's cool. Uh, but the point is, um, it's, it's basically done. I don't know what else there is to do besides market it. It's weird. I mean, they contacted me for that book in early 2021 and I wrote it and I know it kind of feels like I wrote it a long time ago like when I read it now I'm like man you know but on the other hand when I think about that there was a really big shift I think the biggest shift for me scholarship wise or in terms of my ideologies happened going into school and being exposed to certain things and then there was that shift from early 2019 that I've told you about so many times when I really started to think deeply about language and whiteness and race and wrote those two, first two articles but the main shift has been since the second article came out and people wanted to talk to me and, and my development as a public speaker and such. And since probably early 2021, I've been more or less the same place. Just I have more confidence and I, I'm a doctor now. But 
As whereas I wrote something in late 2019, which I completely disagree with, and even the Altruistic Shield article I disagreed with a few months after I wrote it. I agree with the premise, but some of what I wrote in there is like, eh. And then the Decentering Whiteness article, I just have stuff I disagree with, but it's actually still pretty good. Um, so the book doesn't feel as instantly... Like, I, I have two, three chapters coming out in, in edited volumes. One came out, and I have two more that are coming out later this year, which... These are the traditional edited volumes that cost like nine million trillion billion dollars. Like the one that I have bought already was like forty dollars, and I had a discount. It's ridiculous. Nobody's gonna buy this stuff, man. I don't know why academic publishers do this shit. Um, and then we, we didn't even get because there's fifty authors in the book. We didn't even get a free copy. Stupid. Uh, I don't use that word anymore. But it doesn't make any sense. It's greedy. Shouldn't shouldn't call it that. Refer to people's intelligence. Because um, it's not quote-unquote stupid they know what they're doing it's just bad <laughs> i mean i think that's the problem with using these words we use them really sloppily and we refer to intelligence but a lot of time it's not intelligence at all it's just decisions we don't like right that's just a bad decision it's a bad system anyway so the book's pretty much done um and you're gonna hear more talking about it um i will put a, a pre-order link in the show description if you for some reason have not pre-ordered it yet there's only a couple of hundred of you that listen to this show and you're probably all followers on twitter so that's just double dipping there but uh if you if you find it interesting i've got some blurbs to read for you in future episodes uh, and I hope you all support the book when it comes out because that's uh, something. I really went. I really went for the home run on that book. I don't know how good it is. I know the people who've read it liked it. They're obviously inclined to like it. But like the edit, these are real editors, real academics. It passed through them, and they didn't say to change very much. They quibbled with a few small things, but like they 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 bought the premise. To me, my 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 biggest question is: Will you buy the premise that I'm using? the diagnostic criteria of antisocial personality disorder to map onto whiteness and language teaching, right? That seems like it's a wild thing to do, and it is. It's kind of a wild thing to do. Um, so I hope people go along for the ride. All right, so in this week's episode, I have Samantha Harris, which you will know that name per se. She's a doc candidate at UCSB. She works on a lot of the same things that I work on, language and race and that sort of thing. We are going to talk about her research, and we'll talk about how it connects to mine, and we'll talk about a few other things. Uh, that's it. Otherwise, if you enjoy the show, you are welcome to support us on Patreon because, well, we appreciate it. I say we. There's no we. I guess me and my family, but uh, it's really just me. I don't have an editor or anything. So, all right, folks, off to the conversation. Oh, it's already recording. Well, only just now, like a second ago. Um, all right. So, uh, Sam and your classroom, tell us a little bit. Oh, I didn't say the name. I'm standardized English. You all know. You've already been listening to the show for like 10 minutes. Anyway, uh, Sam, tell us about your classroom uh, and, you know, what you're really trying to pull out of the sort of TESOL language teaching field. That's a broad question. That is a broad question. Um, We're jumping right in. Are we talking my classroom, the website, or my classroom, my actual classroom? Well, what's the difference between the two? (laughs) I I would say my classroom, the website, is kind of where I document a lot of my weird experiments that I try out and see what happens, either just like in my own learning or with teaching, but... Um, I don't know. I would say that in my actual classroom, it's hard to say because I bounce around from a lot of different contexts. So I started out in TESOL. Um, I spent a little bit of time working with students who've been categorized as English learners. Um, then I, I taught a TEP class for like four years. And then now I'm working with undergrads for the first time who are in an education uh, minor Oh, and then I just realized that I wrapped up a class with um, students who are in AVID in the public schools, too. So I'm a little bit all over the place. Uh, I think all over the place is the best place to be a lot of the time. Um, so, all right, so you're in Santa Barbara. Yep. Mm-hmm. And how long have you, have you, have you been there just for school, or were you there before that? Or? 
no, I came here just for school and it's been five long slash fast years. Where are you before that? I mean, I guess I should ask you oh, to tell yeah. the whole story, but you know, for I, sure, I, just, for I don't sure. really have any patience. So. And that's all right. I mean, uh, so I grew up in the, well, I don't know if I grew up in the Maryland slash DMV area. Um, but I spent most of my life there, did a little bit of bouncing around. Um, but yeah, that's where it came from. Um, and that's where I started my teaching uh, career. So I was teaching at community colleges um, in Anne Arundel County and in Howard County. That's home for me, too. So it makes me happy to think about. Um, yeah, that's just that's where I grew up. It's a really uh, multilingual community out there. Um, I started teaching English because I didn't know what I wanted to do in college. And I told my mom that and she said, teach English. I always like my English teachers, which we know is not always the story, but um, I just, I was like, okay, let me just check this out. And, you know, my mom was right, as she usually is. I mean, that's that's how I started teaching, too, actually. I was, people listen to the podcast have heard this before, but I was um, on my dad's couch after college, and he was not happy about it. Uh, like he wasn't even like throwing me in the street or anything, but like he, he's just like, I paid all this money for school and what are you doing? You know? And, uh, I had looked around and, and like a lot of the things I was looking at weren't working out, um, cause I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just had no idea. So it was hard to look for something that's not like retail. I'm not criticizing retail cause I actually did get a retail job around that time. Oh, me too. We're twins. Yeah. I worked in retail for so long. I didn't work that long because I was really bad at it. Um, not because I had some entitlement thing, but I'm just now that I look back at the ADHD was not was not the place for that. Um, <laughs> I just didn't realize it at the time. Um, but anyway, so he's not happy about it. And I just looked around and I don't know where I heard about it, but I just I found out pretty soon after I graduated that I could teach English overseas. And you know, uh-huh. because you didn't even have to have any qualification besides having a passport and a college degree. And um, you know, when I thought about something to do, I didn't really think about doing that. I had no, you know, they had Teach for America recruiters on my campus, and I just ignored them. I don't care. Uh, but what did happen is that um, I went back to my high school one day, my senior year in college, when, like, it was, like, finals. So I, you know, and I went to school like an hour away, so it wasn't that big of a deal to come home. And I was just home for the week or something like that. And I just went to my high school, which at that time was only four years out. Like now we're like we're like 15 years after that, and it, it all seemed like it was I haven't been here in so long, but it was four years, and now it's been like a really long time. But anyway, uh, the um, I just remembered how how well I got along with my teachers. Certain teachers, mm-hmm. some of the teachers, some of the teachers. Know. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, but but the ones that I got along with, I was like, you know, maybe I could be that for somebody. I don't know what I'm doing, so you know, I took a class, and and then when I got over there and I realized that I was not, I didn't know what I was doing. I came back after two years to to figure out what I was doing. It's interesting because at my current job, I'm responsible for a lot of the education stuff, and I, I was mm-hmm. talking to my boss recently, and I was like, you know, I've been doing this for like 14 and a half years, <laughs> like you know. Been a while. I mean, yeah. How long have you been been doing this? Uh, let's see. I guess it would have been because I did do the retail thing for a while. I don't know. It's it's weird. I almost sometimes miss it because I think I like just like turning my brain off and just getting work done and crossing it off a list. But um, let's see. I would have started at least a year after college. I think, wow, I, I'm going to have to count. I don't think anyone's ever actually asked me to count how many years I've been doing this. Uh, 20, maybe since 2014. Help me do the math. That's eight years. All right, there you go. That's not that long. I've just not been keeping track. It flies by. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's something that I, because, you know, I thought at various times in the last few years, you know, when I was in school and working and all that, and like, you know, what do I want to do? Because like, whatever it was that I did when I finished was going to be a, a new stage of the career, you know, like yeah. whatever, whatever it was, it was going to be the stage of my career where I had the degree, right? So mm. what, whether that meant getting an academic job or whatever, and I definitely looked at those and I said, whatever it is, it's going to be, um, that's going to be stage two or whatever, right? Yeah. 
And then I said, you know, I feel like that's whatever it is, not necessarily this job, but what I'm doing is probably going to be what I want to be doing long term. Yeah. Some capacity. And then, you know, it might change. And, uh, you know, I um, thought about how many years I wanted to work. Like overall, mm-hmm. the bad thing mm-hmm. about it. And I was just like, you know, when I was thinking about that, I looked back and like, oh, it's already been like 14 years. <laughs> think about that. That's 21 when I started. So. Mm, yeah. It yeah, it, it creeps up on you. But yeah, I don't know. It's interesting that we had similar starts. And then I even actually was thinking about while you were talking that I almost did the, you know, um, what was it? Topic, um, like teaching English in Korea as well. Epic. I, epic. Oh, epic. That's what it was. What am I thinking of? Anyway. Um, yeah, I went through the whole thing. I went and did the interview and I'm pretty sure I got rejected after it was all said and done. And I wasn't like, uh, I don't know. I didn't stand up for myself enough to be like, well, why did I get rejected? But I super did. I think it sort of reminds me of when I was coming back from Korea, I had applied. The funny thing is all this stuff with me being it's continuing to be a, a language teacher and then getting into the curriculum development space that I'm in now or whatever wouldn't have happened if, cause I applied to the New York City teaching fellows. Um, mm-hmm. and I, and you know, that would have been a great situation. I mean, like, you know, I'm sure it's hard to work in those schools, but I'm just saying like, um, would have, it would have been set. I had enough from Korea. I had enough money to pay for the program. Mm-hmm. There wasn't that much money. Yet. Um, that's the point. And then you, I would have a job. That would be it. I'd be a public mm-hmm. teacher. You know? Uh, and I got rejected, like, off the bat, not no interview. And, you know, I looked it up. I, I talked to people over the years. And I realized that they rejected me because I had been teaching for two years. And they wanted to mold new teachers. And mm-hmm. I, I just wonder mm-hmm. if you were a brand new teacher or if you had any kind of experience or if you seemed like you were really experienced. No idea. I mean, I was still in college. I had no experience whatsoever. So that could have been it too. I probably gave them answers that they were just not looking for whatsoever. Yeah. You probably were more progressive than they were looking for. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I, I, I don't know. You would be surprised. I was not as progressive as I am now in college. I had a lot to unlearn. I've come a long way and I have a long way to go, but college me was a very different person. Yeah. I guess I was too. It's funny. It's funny that I was I was right about certain things in the wrong way. Like, um, you know, I really didn't like Republicans, right? Now I wasn't wrong. <laughs> I was not wrong, but I was wrong in the sense that I was coming to it from like a democratic perspective, specifically. Mm-hmm. And it was like a, the thing that I hate now in politics is just sports teams. And like I knew it was that was always true, but I didn't really realize it in college. And I was mm-hmm. just like, oh, I love my sports team. I love, uh, I hate your sports team. But like, there were real, real stuff going on. Like, we all saw like Katrina and all that, which happened when I was in college. But like, you know, it still seemed like isolated events without realizing that the whole system was so messed up. And you know, mm-hmm. people listening is like, oh, come on, how'd you not know that? Yeah, well, you know, I didn't. So I, uh, so looking back, like a lot of the people that I like hated, you know, in my school, because there really weren't that many open Republicans at age like 18, 19, even at a place like Princeton. Um, I wasn't wrong. <laughs> I was just, it, it's just that the group of people that I disagreed with was much larger than I thought. I thought mm-hmm. it was just half, but it was, it was actually more, a lot more than half of the people. I, I should say, I shouldn't say hate. I don't hate most people just in the sense that I hate most people. just following what the parents told me. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> so yeah, uh, but the people in Korea, the EFL people, not the, mm-hmm. Kore- not the Koreans, um, you know, you, like, there was some, like, like, looking back, like, really racist shit that happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, stuff that, not like N-words or anything like that, but, like, stuff that, like, when I look back, I'm just like, hmm. Mm. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I would ask myself, how did I let that go? But mm. um, I realize now it's because it was just me, right? Like, what am I going to do? So it's easier to just yeah. get along. Why am I alone with me? You know, there were, you know, there are people saying things like, hey, this, is, this is racist, so I'm saying it, but uh, Indian dot not feather, things like that, you know, different kinds of Indians, you know, and all that stuff. Um, and just just a lot of weird stuff. And, and you know, I could ignore it enough because they didn't really target me with it. They mostly said those things in general, just out loud. Mm-hmm. 
and then I would come home and I still Facebook friends with them and, I, and then they would say really racist stuff because they're on the internet and I was like oh mm-hmm. yeah I should have known that that's exactly who they were mm-hmm. <laughs> like why, why didn't I know mm-hmm. uh, these were the the other like EFL teachers oh or yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not talking oh, about the okay. Koreans the, 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 Korean, the Korean racism I got was mostly like they had never met a black person before so it was like mm-hmm. you know just they associated me with the scene on, on TV so I wonder if you you know, experience that places you've been where there aren't a lot of Asian folks and people who are listening would maybe not know that from your name, but. <laughs> oh, <laughs> if I've experienced, uh, like. Well, the... like the, not, not just racism in general. I'm not going to be like, Hey, tell me about your racism. Yeah. <laughs> it's not what I meant. No. I mean, like where people who've never met someone who looks like you, like oh, a specific experience. I you know? see. Um, yeah, I would say it's kind of a weird one. Um, since I grew up in Maryland, uh, Maryland is this weird kind of space where it's kind of segregated, um, like by county almost. So there's this idea growing up that if you're from Howard County, you're Asian. And if you're, you know, from PG County, you're black. That's just uh, the way. My, gra- my grandmother lived in, it was, was in PG County. So. Oh, that's home. Oh, that's so sweet. Um, we'll have to compare notes later. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's this weird thing where I would travel between those two counties fairly often just because of like where I worked part-time versus like where friends live versus like where my parents needed to go for different things and that sort of thing. And it really just depended on who I was uh, talking to at the time. Um, And yeah, it's a, it's a weird one to uh, experience like being teased for being Asian, like in one space and then go into the other space and be like, wow, you're so white, (laughs) you know? Um, And it's harder, you know, I think maybe for folks in my generation, like growing up, uh, I don't know, there's not a lot of conversations about, you know, being mixed or, you know, even just space to talk about being Asian American at the time. I would say now, uh, just because of social media and I feel like education has changed. I feel like it's a very different conversation where talking about being mixed also comes with talking about, in my instance, right, like uh, proximity to whiteness, right, and what that means and the type of privilege that affords um, different people. Um, but I would say that, yeah, it's it's been kind of a, a transition, I would say, from what it was like back then and people having really kind of backwards, you know, monoracial ideologies and monolingual ideologies, which is, you know, kind of my research area of interest um and so it it goes hand in hand with like um you know oh I didn't know that was your mom and also like why do you speak Korean and you know explain that to me because I can't wrap my whole head around it it, like doesn't seem that complicated from my perspective but then when you start to untangle it it's like oh yeah this is all kind of just embedded in the way that people think um so I don't know it's kind of those weird like microaggressions that happen um in different spaces but um, I would say the biggest experiences I had of like outright racism for that sort of thing was because I was mixed. And that was mostly because we attended a really conservative church that was like mostly white. Um, and a lot of a lot of the ideologies that they had about race and racial mixing and all of that sort of thing was not super healthy for uh, my development as a child, you know. And so I had again, like I said, I had a lot to unlearn. Um, and oddly enough, I think social media was kind of the way for me to unlearn a lot of those things. Like I talked to strangers on the internet. I mean, clearly we're, <laughs> this is how we met. That's my, my go-to is like, if I don't understand the way something works, I'm going to go talk to strangers on the internet. And, you know, there were some really wonderful and really kind and generous people who, um, were able to help me kind of figure out like why those perspectives were wrong and problematic and, uh, kind of helped me to see the world for what it is a little bit. Certainly meet some people talking to people on the internet in the last 20 something years. I met some people who, like you said, really were useful and collaborators and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and then people, and I think back to when I was like, when I was like younger and I was on like AOL. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder, you know, because the chat rooms like that don't really exist anymore. Like, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you, can, you can join a discord or something like that, but like, uh, it's not, quite the same thing because you know people tend to put their actual names on these things a lot of the time mm-hmm. um depending on how people are using it and i remember i met <laughs> this this i don't know 
I must have been 14 and the other person was like 13 or 15 and like I was talking to somebody and then like their sister got on. Um, cause people used to just switch between like siblings, like typing, which is like a thing. People used to, it's weird. I don't know how chat room used to be. And, um, we asked each other what race we were because this is the thing you did on the internet. Oh, and right. Cause there's no pictures and stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know what I look like. And I, you know, so I was black and then, and then the other person said she came back, like the sister switched back. And then I said, Oh, what happened? She said, oh, she just doesn't, she doesn't like black people. And I was just like, what? <laughs> so she just like got up from the computer screen and left. So yeah. Oh my just, God. I thought the plot twist was going to be, it was just one person. Or well, something, yeah. I, don't, I don't necessarily think that that's impossible, but at least one of the people, whether it was one people mm-hmm. or several people, uh, believe that. So, um, oh. it was weird, weird, weird being on the internet. Uh, but like, you know, it's not like my dad's house and stuff like that. We make do so. But it's the thing you mentioned about the uh, monolingual ideologies and just sort mm. of the, I think that's really important, not just in the United States, but in a lot of places where, mm-hmm. um, especially in a lot of the dominant, you know, most powerful places, right? Uh, this idea that, that there's language and, and uh, nationality are really tied together. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I think that that contributes, like, all sorts of isms, you know, are tied into mm-hmm. those two things being combined. Because those are really powerful ideologies that, when put together, are even more powerful. Mm-hmm. And uh, depending on where you are, there's places where, like, to reject that is is almost dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really hard to move away from that for people. Yeah. And it seems so natural, I think, for for some folks. I think that's part of a thing with, um, you know, if we're talking specifically about Korea, it's seen as so just natural, right? To have a Korean identity means to speak Korean and to speak it like a native speaker and to also be racialized as someone who could be um, Korean. There's this uh, great YouTube video, and I can't remember who produced it, um, but they start off with some guests and they give them questions and they say, uh, the questions are just like, if you're a Korean person, you have to speak Korean. Um, and if you are a Korean person, you have to look like you're Korean, right? And I'm like, wow, did they read my like research? Like, <laughs> what are they doing? Uh, but then they have these guests kind of like fill out this uh, survey. And, you know, they have they I think they're also conscious of being on camera, but um, they do kind of land on that conclusion, right? Like, yeah, of course, like, of course, if you're Korean, you have to speak Korean. Um, and then they like bring out the, you know, multiracial guest who then has to kind of defend multiracial identity to an entire audience. Uh, but I was talking about this video with somebody else, and I'm like, who would have the patience to kind of sit there and answer all of these questions? But it is kind of interesting to watch people be confronted with it, even though I think mixed race is becoming a much more um, common identity in Korea itself. But it's just seen as so inherent that people can't even really seem to wrap their mind around it. Um, because it's so naturalized at this point. So speaking of that, you said that it sounded exactly like the research. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I found that, uh, well, there was a piece you combined on that was published, was it 2021? Mm-hmm. Where you were one of several authors, right? Um, which I found really interesting. Um, and, I mean, I could just ask you to tell me what's in it, but I think I'm going to come to this from, from the back and say, like, just a big question I had after that is that, like, how hard it is for people to do things that are outside of their identity, what they see as their identity. You know, that's yeah. sort of what that's, that's, that's one of the things that I come away with as a conclusion. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, because. The problem with that is then you just have to sit there and defend it, right? Because if you do anything that's unexpected and outside of what is the stereotype, essentially, for you, then it's kind of this weird emotional rigmarole, right, where you have to explain everything about your background. And I think, I don't know, I imagine for introverts, it's even harder because then you have to, in this scenario, right, when you're talking about mixed race and people are constantly questioning your identity, Sometimes you have to talk about your actual family members, right, and your parents, and a lot, like maybe not everyone's comfortable talking about who their parents are and 
you know, um, like how they met, because that's another question that comes up too. Um, so yeah, it's weird how we have these social scripts and like as soon as something, uh, doesn't meet that, right, we have to like do this other kind of performance. So, um, I think that's why you see that a lot of my, uh, participants in that study, it was, it was me and my advisor, uh, who wrote that one together. Um, but, uh, that's why I think you see so many of them just, um, avoiding speaking Korean altogether. And they're like, I am going to opt out of this scenario. That's their kind of agency in that situation where they say, I'm just not going to say anything at all. Um, but it's not always so bad. Like, it's not just negative. I know, um, sometimes when I read back, uh, the findings from that paper, I'm like, Oh, so depressing. And like, I tried to end it on like an optimistic note, but I did have another chapter that came out because these people also get really creative too, right? So they've been, um, you know, racialized their whole life as either being, you know, to this or to that or not enough this or not enough that. Um, but then they kind of co-opt that a little bit later on. Like, like I have other findings where it's, it's like, I'm going to use this to my advantage to accomplish other kinds of tasks. Um, so for instance, when they go to Korea, they're like, all right, I'm going to be a foreigner. I'm going to pretend to be that, that foreign person. And my Korean is going to be medium, but guess what? I know people are going to celebrate it because I only have to do the bare minimum. Um, and so I have a example of a participant named, uh, who I called Christopher. Um, and he's like, I got free stuff because I, I used my kind of average Korean and I just pretended to be American. And I was like, good for you. That, that worked out. So yeah, I don't know. It, where, where was where was Christopher actually from? Uh, he was from uh, the East Coast. Oh, okay. so yeah, yeah, he's American. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's pretty interesting to think about because I know that the people who were in Korea who were ethnic Korean, um, the teachers, I mean, from the EFL, you know, that I was doing, they definitely had some really interesting experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, the people, some people were very understanding of them because a lot of them were adoptees so it wasn't the mm-hmm. fault obviously mm-hmm. they just leave um and some people were really hostile to them yeah well even if it's not like outright hostile like I, I do know that folks who are you know ethnically Korean who are racialized as Korean they have all these expectations of their language right um I have uh, a colleague who's writing a paper about the um singer rapper Jesse I love her music by the way it's just like a random fangirl moment um but if she goes on these variety shows you know and and you know korean talk show hosts fall all over themselves when these white men come on and use like uh whatever uh korean as a second language but then jesse who's been speaking korean her whole life because she you know spent like i think 16 years in america she she's a heritage speaker right and so she has um, a heritage variety of Korean and she's held to a very high standard and is often like criticized a lot. Um, and that's the kind of reality of um, heritage speakers who go back to Korea all the time. And so I think that's why it's important to look um, at folks who kind of fall outside of that example. Right. Um, because Christopher told me like when he's in Korea, people think he's black. He, they think he's, you know, just American. And so he uses that to his advantage, but he knows it's a double standard, right. That, that, well, it's, it, I guess maybe the better phrase would be like double-edged sword, right? Where he has to kind of give up that aspect of his Korean identity in order to um, have a good appraisal of his, a positive appraisal of his language. Um, but for him in that moment, his agenda, right, is to have that practice, like practice using his language to improve on it. Um, and he was able to accomplish that um, by kind of taking advantage of, of the... Um, the way he's racialized, but yeah. I um, I just think that that's really a, um, I think I, I'm trying to think of a good way to put this. Uh, it's just a really underexposed subject in literature. I think that unfortunately. The research, especially English language research, um, has, you know, mostly focused on what's wrong with the students, you know, and uh, this is 
I think not unrelated to the insistence upon that being what most of the research is. Because if the research is about what's wrong with the students, then, you know, it leads to people in this situation thinking there's something wrong with them if they're in any place where they're expected to, to use the language. You know, that, that, you know, this deficit mindset that's inherent to teaching research. Um, still, like, you know, they told me when I started my program, like, you know, you have to find a problem. Mm-hmm. I understand that they mean that you have to find something you want to change, but still, mm-hmm. still, like, a lot of the thing is that people find the problem and the problem is students. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. That's what we've been talking about in my education and culture class this summer with my undergrads and we just wrapped up talking about the listening subject so I think they they're exploring all of these topics I taught a summer class too which was a short summer class it was like Memorial Day to a week ago Um, and it was really interesting seeing the difference even in a short period of time from the students Um, because there's this one girl, like, I don't want to say girl, woman, she was, I don't know, she was like 20, so, you know, around, <laughs> wherever that difference is. Um, <laughs> Personal uh, student. Yeah, but um, she, she kept using things in ways that I think were tied to harm, but she obviously wasn't doing it intentionally. You know, it was like the class was a lot of stuff about whiteness and language teaching it was the stuff that I write about, right? And I didn't teach a class by myself, but um, I was the one monitoring the message boards, right? My co-teachers put it together, and I basically did all the monitoring and responding to it. Anyway, she kept talking about certain things, about how um, someone had an act, you know, like the idea that only people from other, other places had access and that she didn't have an accent kind of thing. You know, and I'm just like, I said to her, (laughs) I said this politely. This is not how I said it. I said, you're from Long Island. (laughs) (laughs) You definitely have an accent. Um, So, but anyway, uh, I I said it more politely and more scholarship as if to say that, Mm. like, people who are not from here would say that we here in New York, and especially people from Long Island, have an accent. Um, Mm -hmm. So if we we need to be clear when we're using that word that we're describing mm-hmm. a particular sound and not different from my own sound. Yeah. Di- distance. That's so interesting. I mean, yeah, I always try to cover language variation even broadly beyond just accents, right? Because we use different words for different things. Mm-hmm. And it's been really nice teaching on the West Coast as an East Coast person because there's so many examples of uh things that people in California say differently so I always fall back on like the DMV MBA distinction right because I don't go to the DMV I'm from the DMV and you go to the MBA to take you know the driver's test um and students are like what like why would you call it that that's so weird um or like I sometimes say like I'm gonna take like you like you take 101 but it's so not 101 it's dull 101 if you're on the west coast and so just like highlighting those like little variations in word choice and that sort of thing kind of makes them realize like oh I'm doing this unintentionally and I do talk differently than speakers and you know the rest of this country that I live in and we don't all talk the same and I do have and maybe not an accent but at the very least there's you know differences in in the way we refer to things well it's an what do they say it's an idiolect right Hmm. is a way that you, you yourself, speak and sound, right? Idiolect is about the words, but still, I think it's tied to the sound as well. Like, you know, there is a way that when people hear you, they know it's you. Yeah, exactly. And that's true of anybody, if you hear them a couple of times. Um, the uh, thing about... The accents and the way, yeah, I was thinking about that. You're talking about highways, and I think how to get places is one of the biggest, like, differences in the way people talk, you know? Um, cause, like, Google, Google has to be neutral, or it picks a generic yeah. or dominant American accent, and, but it's not like New York or California. It's probably, I think, it's like a newscast accent. It's like Ohio or something. But Ohio has an accent, so I don't know, a, a very, like, a very distinct, like, 
you're from Ohio accent is what I'm saying. Um, so I don't know, but it's some flat accent. Mm-hmm. And um, it also uses what they think is neutral um, directions. But like if it gives me directions in New York, it's always using the wrong words. Like, yeah, I have to know what I have to know where I'm going. Like, and generally, I know where I'm going. New York, obviously, but like, um, you know, I don't know which exit things are, and that's the only thing I use it for. Because like, I get on the highway. I went to the beach on Sunday with my son and my wife, and I get on the highway, and the thing is telling me, "Take I two seventy eight. No one on planet Earth has ever called the Brooklyn Queens Expressway I two seventy eight. <laughs> so um I just knew I had to go to the BQE. That's what we even called the room, which called the BQE, right? And I don't I I hate driving, but like even I know it's BQE. Um mm-hmm. and so you know, that that's a way that like this is funny for me, but like you can see how a student who's not necessarily confident in their language but has mm-hmm. picked picked up language from around them, goes to school can understand everybody in their neighborhood very well goes to school and they're told that there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's funny for me that the phone tells me the wrong name for the highway. Mm-hmm. But somebody else, if they refer to a certain things a certain way, they're going to get a lower score on a test. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a difference too because I, like, I see very stark differences, obviously, in my undergrad class and then like the classes that I teach for TEP, right? Because demographically the TEP classes are, you know, they're very white. And a lot of times these are students who've never ever had to think about their language before. And and that's why they, they, I feel like they've never been told that they have an accent or a particular way of speaking. Right. And it's the same thing when we think about race at the same time, right? I think um, the folks that I talked to in my interview don't need any like, hints about you know talking about race because they've had to think about it their entire life because people make it obvious to them all the time Um, and so when I work with students who've been categorized as English learners or if I I work in uh, with a lot of my um, undergrads they've been thinking about language their whole life because people are always telling them there's something wrong with their language you know Um, so then if you've been able if you if you have the privilege right to avoid that you kind of need these kind of extra pedagogical steps a little bit to kind of put yourself into those shoes. Um, and so that's why I try and like create these exercises where they're kind of forced to think about their linguistic variation in comparison with others, because I think it, I don't know, it might be a hard one to, to figure out, right. If, if you are like a, if you fit that model of like standard English, you know, uh, quote unquote, unaccented neutral <laughs> English speaker. Yeah, I don't know who has that because even I like I always thought that I didn't have much of an accent because Mm -hmm. these are the ideologies I grew up with and I know I'm from New York but like there's a more stereotypical like Brooklyn accent you know Mm -hmm. all of that right and I know people who sound like that and I don't really sound like that so I said to myself when I was well you know it's not like I tried to avoid it I just don't sound like that um part of that I always thought because both my parents are not from New York so I wasn't picking up my parents' accents. I was just sort of bridging the distance between their accents and, like, the people around me or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as I got older, I realized there were certain things I was saying in a very New York way. Um, and I liked that. It made me feel closer to the city. But, like, mm. just, um, you know, that's, that's how my voice sounds. So, you know, I just think that that's... Um, it also reminds me what you're saying with my dissertation research where um, the classes I taught about whiteness, I had, they were all educators. They weren't all, they were mostly educators. They were all adults though. And the, hmm. I, I asked all of them, well, I teach adults, you know, but I asked all of them, you know, when did you learn that you were categorized as the race that you are, right? Mm-hmm. And um, all the people of color said something, the, the actual details were different obviously but something like well in kindergarten you know some kid mm-hmm. told me my my skin was different right and that not necessarily like horrible racist stuff just like someone pointed that out to them when they were like four five six mm-hmm. um for me i think i was six when mm-hmm. 
like I was saying, every kid knows they're different from other kids. But I mean, in the sense that being, you know, looking like every kid looks different, though. So just thinking that, you know, my skin's darker than his didn't matter. But like knowing that, like, that that mattered only happened when I was like six or something like that. Um, But anyway, all the white people were like, well, and I didn't, not like everyone in school checks a box on the like forms. I'm not talking Mm -hmm. about knowing that. That's just a fact. Like knowing that it has an effect on you. All the white people were just like, yeah, when I was in like grad school. (laughs) (laughs) They're being honest. That's what I asked them to do. But like, Mm -hmm. I was they knew they were white. But like, like, Mm -hmm. these are people who are taking a class with me who know my rights. Mm -hmm. So these are not people who are coming in racism 101. Right. Mm -hmm. So these are people who've taken probably an anti-racism class before, but they want to take a class on whiteness itself. And basically the realization of like the full scope of, of whiteness happened and they were always like 25. Hmm. Well, it's just how marked it is, right? Like that, so that, I mean, that's just the thing every time, right? So you don't have an accent if it's, you know, the norm and you don't have a race if it's not the norm and it's not something it's not drawn to your attention if it is the norm so everybody outside of what's considered normal or you know yeah that I mean that's privilege right that you don't have to think about it yeah sheesh yeah for me it was fixed too because the pastor of our church told me that it's unnatural that I'm mixed race because Noah had two of every animal on the ark and I was like huh Hmm. Yeah, that's how I learned. There, it, there was more elaboration, but yeah, that's. I figured out quickly things. Things were happening. For me, I think um, some famous figure died that my my uh, my parents or my mom or somebody was really sad about. And I didn't really understand why. Um, you know, somewhat heroic black figure. And uh, she said she was sad because the first time is important. And yeah. I asked why she was talking about what they've done. I can't remember who it was. I have to look up who, who my dad died here. But, um, you know, that's why I sort of understood not just, like, my skin is different from the mm. kids at school, which, like, I knew that from when I was six months old. But, you know, at least on the research, like, kids know color differences immediately almost um but like understanding that it meant something mm-hmm. you know later i figured out the bad things it meant but I actually like my first experience was actually a positive one um it's you know with my family talking about you know what's so important but the funny thing is i don't remember who the person was <laughs> <laughs> I remember the conversation. I don't know. Everyone, everyone in my head in 1992 looked like Nelson Mandela. Like, like every memory of an older black person. Oh, that's cute, though. Did you said it looked like your mom? No, I, no, I said Nelson Mandela. Um, oh, Nelson. How <laughs> oh, cute. Uh, so I just think, like, if it's before, like, I'm a teenager, and I think of someone, like, an old, like, I just, I had understood it's like um, I don't know why. It'll come to you at the most random moment you'll remember suddenly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know if you had this experience because you seemed like you had some more. I hate the phrase overt racism because like it's not like we know <laughs> um, blatant, unvarnished. Um, I don't know whatever out and out seems like you had more of that than I did growing up I mean I had I had moments um, but but just for your church and all that um but but anyway that's not the quote uh I'm saying I'm not talking about that uh yeah it's it's hard to like quantify or qualify but then also um yeah that's part of why I I said early on like you know, when I was in college, I had a lot to unlearn because that's the environment I grew up in for so long. And did you so, believe it? What they were saying about you? I, I don't know. I was a weird kid. 
I kind of was a little bit of a contrarian. So I think to a certain extent, I thought that eventually I would believe it because I kind of just like telling them they were wrong just to piss people off. Um, and so, yeah, I got in a lot of trouble while I was there from like early on. Um, but you know, deep down, like if, when you're told that I have a lot of, you know, religious conflict and stuff like that as well, because you know, you're hearing that. And then at the same time, there's like this whole narrative about like, you know, if you don't believe this stuff, you're going to hell and all that sort of thing. So it's hard to say what I believe per se, because yeah, it, it got a lot more complicated than that at times. Um, but I, I did know that I identified really closely with my mom's culture because she was very, um, emphatic early on on us, like speaking the language and that sort of thing. Cause she had this big concern that, you know, we wouldn't be close to her later on in life if we didn't, um, have a lot of cultural exposure and that sort of thing. And then because we ended up moving to Korea for a little bit, um, when I was younger, um, I think I kind of identified a little bit, uh, in that direction. So I don't know. I think because they, there was so much of that discourse floating around in that space, I, maybe that's why I hated it so much. And I was always rebelling and pushing back um, and making people angry. Uh, so, yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think um, I, I wasn't given a lot of opportunity to hear alternatives because my uh, my Korean family is also very conservative and they have a lot of those uh, problematic ideologies that I, I'm trying to write about and say like identify as like you know this is, this is having a real effect on real people's lives um and so uh, I didn't just arrive at that conclusion I had to make it an active process to figure out okay why does my community think this way um so for instance I can remember like one of the most salient moments of this actually as like an unlearning process um was when uh you know the Freddie Gray verdict came out and we were living um, fairly close to Baltimore. Not, not really. I mean, PG County is like, it's a drive from Baltimore, but it's not like right next door. But, um, because, uh, my mom and my stepdad are both Korean. They have, you know, friends who are, um, Korean business owners in Baltimore. And you get, like, uh, as soon as the verdict was about to come out, there was all of this conversation about, okay, we need to, you know, board up the businesses and like everybody go home and that sort of thing. And I remember, um, just a lot of conversation with second generation Korean Americans at the time out there. Um, and a lot of conversation about the LA riots coming back up because I hadn't learned about it in school. It was never even like nobody taught that to me. It wasn't covered. I never took Asian American studies classes in college. Like all of that was like fresh. Right. And so I, um, I learned about this history and we learned about, you know, the rooftop Korean uh, men who had, you know, guns and that sort of thing. And I, I bought into a lot of really toxic ideologies that, you know, oh, this, you know, this is what being a, a minority is supposed to look like. Um, you have to defend your community and all of that sort of thing. But the more and more we talked about it, um, we ha- like it, it really was an active unlearning process. And a lot of it was those strangers on Twitter, you know, who I was talking to, um, uh, around the same time and they told me like look the things that you believe are wrong this is like your problem is a much bigger problem like it's not uh, a matter of you know the Korean community versus the black community and it was like really like reading and reflecting and that sort of thing and I'm really glad that those people called me out on a lot of those um beliefs um but yeah I, there was so much that was kind of just uh, existing uh in the community around me and like no, it wasn't part of the education at all. Um, so it's been kind of a journey for me to like actively unlearn a lot of this stuff. So like I said, I, I, I am a very different person than I was in college. Yes, so. <laughs> it's, it's hard, I think. Um, it's not just race stuff, but any, all these ideologies. You know, just a general change in ideology away from believing in the societal narratives, you know, mm-hmm. um, is um, 
it's really a challenge because once you start to learn stuff, you know, every part of you is just like, mm-mm, 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 you know, because it, you, you're just really scared about what it will be like to be out there without the safety net of the stories you've been told. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's not actually that bad out here. <laughs> that's no, that's actually what my dissertation was about. It actually, well, that ended up being the central metaphor of my dissertation was, and I, I told this story before. I don't know if I told it on the show, but I told it many times, and then I have to go anyway. But 10 years ago now, exactly 10 years ago, it was like 10 years ago in June, so a little bit more than 10 years ago, I went to Ecuador. And, uh, because I wanted to go to Amazon my whole life, and I, I was able to afford to go to Amazon, but I was going to go to Manaus, which is in Brazil, because um, that's like the biggest city in the Amazon. And I was like, I want to be a big city, but in the Amazon, like, that's kind of cool, right? So you like snakes in the city. I don't know. That was weird. Um, but then the price shut up. So I went to Ecuador, and uh, it was a lot cheaper to be in Quito, and then I go to Amazon. So I go there, and like, I had to take a boat for two hours from the like town um and then like they're showing us there's like snakes crocodiles shit monkeys everywhere um piranha and finally at night at, at sunset we stop in the middle of the lagoon everybody like jumps in the water like the fuck <laughs> like, i'm not getting this water <laughs> um and everybody got in so eventually i got in and i'm like i didn't even bring a bathing suit so i was just in my underwear and you know of course almost everybody else is white and uh, they're all just swimming, and I'm just like, you're all just, you've all lost your mind. And I jump in the water, not only is the water not deep, like, the bottom is like, it's like eight feet deep, so like my feet hit the ground, but the water's like warm. It was okay. actually like really nice. And that's the one I compare um, to people stepping away from the sort of narratives that they had handed to them, okay. you know, is like, you look out there at the lagoon, you're like, these crocodiles are going to eat me, these piranha are going to eat me, I'm going to drown. And then you get in the water, and it's, you, you still have to swim, you have to keep swimming, but mm-hmm. like, your feet will hit the ground, and there are other people there. So, anyway, Sam, you have any uh, final thoughts you want to share about the, the work that you're trying to do, you know, what you are hoping to do when you do, you know, finish school? Oh, that is a great question. I, I'm on the teeter-totter right now trying to decide like so many people are leaving academia and I'm so undecided I mean I'm I'm really trying to figure it out I I think I'm in the same place that I was when I was trying to figure out what to do in college maybe I'll just ask my mom what I should do and she'll give me the right answer um but I would say the the one thing that I am kind of super excited about that I'm working on right now um is uh, a paper with some of my uh, colleagues on uh, on K-pop actually, um, and kind of globalization of of Korean language and kind of some ideologies that underlie um, Korean language teaching when it comes to uh, incorporating uh, Hallyu as part of or well uh, like K-pop and K-dramas and that sort of thing as part of the actual language instruction because um, you know it's it's making waves anyway. I still prefer the K-pop of 2008 to 2010. It was a good era. It was a good era. That's when I was there. And, oh, was it? That's so good. Uh, and and that's therefore that was the one I was listening to in the. Were you in Seoul when you lived there? Uh no, I was in the countryside in Kangwondo. Oh, Kangwondo. Oh, Kangwondo is nice. It is nice, isn't it? That's like nature, though. Yeah, yeah, it's way out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a guy who was the EFL teacher from like Alabama, and he just like met and married a Korean girl. And he just lived in Gangnam for the last fourteen years. He just, oh wow! He just lives there. Um, but yeah, no, uh, we got to talk about Wonder Girls. We need to talk about uh, the Princess Ihyori, which is <laughs> <laughs> that's that one. You know the song. You know the song. I actually don't. I, I had a very specific like taste I was super into like Big Bang which like oof that that group disappointed down the road uh let's see and like Beast 
and 2 p.m. They're they're all boy groups. They all have the same thing in common. You don't like to anyone. You know, I never really got into 21. I don't know what it is. And it's like I'm very familiar with their songs because they were played constantly, but it wasn't my favorite. I think of girl groups maybe like four minutes. Yeah, I liked uh, like 21. Although the best song was when Big Bang and 21 combined. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. That was like one of my favorite songs. It was so good. And the music video was so fun. It's so bright color. That's not how we do it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That was actually the first song I ever heard by Big Bang. I remember because, like, I just randomly saw it. I was on LimeWire. Was that, did you ever use that? Yeah. All those viruses. I was like ripping songs off of LimeWire and just put it on my video iPod one day. Just I was like, oh, a Korean song. Let me check this out. My whole life changed after that. Yeah. All right, Sam. You have a good night. Everyone, thanks for listening. It's been a fun episode as ever. Oh, okay. Oh.